Good morning. It's great to be speaking in our Origin series. I hope you've been enjoying it and uh, finding time to discuss some of the characters in your groups as you've met together. And today we're going to look at Jacob and Esau, twin brothers, and a family that has, ends up being broken uh, because of the rivalry between them. You know, in any story that we read or look at, we're often searching for who is the hero, who is the goody, the heroine, who is uh, the baddie, the villain. And when I look back to my childhood, a lot of the stories were very clear-cut. Who, you knew who the goody was, and you knew that it would end happily ever after. And you knew the villain. Sometimes it was the music that told you, uh-oh, the villain is coming. And you knew that they would get their kind of comeuppance, and things would be uh, dealt with. But often in a lot of the movies and TV dramas that we watch now, it isn't like that, is it? You know, you might have a really clever, inspired detective, but they will have a really flawed character. And there'll be a mixture of motives and good and bad decisions. And actually, that's more true to life, isn't it? Because we know in our own hearts that often we do make wrong choices, even though our intentions can be good. Sometimes there's mixed motives, isn't there? Even in the best of what we do. And we see that in the character of Genesis, of of the, the characters that we read about in Genesis. They are ordinary people like you and I. They are certainly not perfect. And many of them have some character flaws and make wrong choices. But God is still at work in their lives. So we're going to see with Isaac and Rebecca, Isaac we spoke about last week, they have twins, uh, Esau and um, Jacob. And Esau is born first, but Jacob is born quickly after grabbing hold of Esau's heel. And that's going to be a symbol of the struggle between these two brothers. So even from their birth, we're wondering How's this going to work out? Who is going to be kind of the one that inherits the birthright? Esau is the firstborn son, but it looks like he may be usurped. Now, remember, in those days, being the firstborn gave you all the privileges. And there was a ceremony, a moment where you inherited all those privileges. And it was where the head of the family, the father, would hand over the birthright to the elder son. And that birthright gave the elder son three things. Firstly, it gave him property. And the eldest son in the family would inherit a double portion of any of the land, the wealth, uh, the flocks that the family had accrued. The second thing it would do, it would give the elder son power within the family. He could make uh, decisions on behalf of other people in the family. He was not just a nominal head, he had power within the family. And the third thing is that in Genesis, we see that with the birthright comes the promise of God. Remember, we've been tracing the promises, the covenant between God and these characters, these families throughout Genesis. And the elder son is the one who's going to get those promises. 
So as we meet Esau and Jacob, we're going to wonder who is going to get the birthright. So these boys grow up, they're twins, but they couldn't be more different. Esau is rugged and outdoorsy. He loves to hunt. He's kind of, you know, rugged and hairy and kind of man's man. And he is his father's favorite. Jacob, rather, is more refined. He loves to stay indoors. He cooks. He probably would have wanted to be on MasterChef or something like that. He stays in the tents. His mum favors him. And he's quick-witted and cunning. So let's catch up with them and find out what happens next. We're going to be starting in Genesis 29, uh, 25, verse 29, but we're going to be covering three chapters. So we're just going to nip in and out of the chapters. Uh, keep your Bible open if you've got it, or else the verses will come up onto the screen. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew... Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. So we see in this moment that Jacob, although he's the second born, he's been thinking about that birthright. And he's going to grasp this opportunity and try and get it. Look, says Esau, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob says to him, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. I mean, it doesn't sound that appetizing, does it really? But he ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Maybe Esau's thinking, well, this is just kind of brother banter. It doesn't really mean anything. Maybe he's thinking, I'm Isaac's favorite. Whatever happens, he's going to give me the birthright. But in that moment, he is so hungry, he, his perceived need kind of overwhelms him, and he wants immediate satisfaction, and he's willing to give up his future, his inheritance, his birthright for that moment's pleasure. Like Adam and Eve, he trades God's best for him for personal fulfillment. He gets the stew. I mean, I hope it tasted really good because the consequences of that meal are going to break up their family and he's going to be sidelined from the promises of God. I don't know if you've ever in a moment chosen something that felt irresistible, that you were desperate for, that tasted so good, but had bitter consequences for you and maybe for your family. But nothing seems to change in the, first, the next few verses, we, we find out that Esau continues to kind of make bad decisions. So he marries two Hittite women, and they bring grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So we know that that wasn't a good choice. They're probably idol worshippers, so we question Esau's integrity again. 
But the story moves on. And in uh, chapter 26, we find that the blessing of God, the promise of God is reiterated to Isaac. And God says, it will pass on to your descendants. So again, we're thinking, well, which of the descendants will this promise pass on to? And the other thing that happens in chapter 26 is that Isaac, by good decisions, amasses much wealth. He becomes very wealthy, we read. So the birthright becomes even more significant. In Genesis 27, the chapter opens with Isaac old and weak and blind. And he wants to hand over the birthright to his first son Esau. So he gathers Esau to one side and kind of says, look, go out and hunt, cook me my favorite meal, so we see where the appetite comes from maybe, and then I will give you the birthright. Now it's interesting that he does this kind of secretly, he doesn't gather the whole family together and say what he's going to do. But Rebecca, his wife, she overhears and she takes action. She hatches a plan because she wants her favorite son, Jacob, to get the birthright. So she, she gets Jacob to cook Esau's favorite, um, Isaac's favorite food and to dress in Esau's clothes, even kind of put kind of uh, fur on his arms because uh, Esau was hairy. And she, she kind of coaches him how to trick his father. And so Jacob goes into his father, brings this food, and he deceives him. He lies to him point blank. And Jacob, he, he takes this initiative because he's grasping at the birthright. And Isaac pronounces the birthright blessing over Jacob. And there's no going back. Now, that seems a little bit strange to us because when we think of inheritance or power of attorney, wills, everything's written down and it's witnessed. But in those days, the word of the head of the family was binding. There was no going back. Jacob, the liar, the deceiver, has got the birthright. He now has the double portion, the property, the power in the family, and the promises of God are his. We can imagine if this was a soap opera, if this was EastEnders, we would see Jacob leaving the room, perhaps a little bit, looking a little bit snug, smug. The villain's music would be playing, and the episode would end on, on a kind of cliff edge, or well, what's going to happen next? Is Jacob going to get away with this, or is... Um, Isaac going to do something about this. And then the next episode opens equally dramatically. We're back in the same room, and there's Isaac in his chair, and Esau comes in with his food, expecting to get the birthright. And his father, Isaac, hears someone coming in. Remember, he's blind and says, who are you? I am your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. 
When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. It's done. There's no going back. And Esau, who previously had despised the birthright, is devastated because he wants it. He wants it badly. He is furious that Jacob has deceived his father and taken the birthright. And he resolves that he's going to kill Jacob and he's going to get that back. And so Jacob, fearing for his life, Rebekah again comes in with a plan. We see how Rebekah has just undermined her husband, uh, the firstborn, and she um, sends Jacob away to her brother's house and to safety. Now, the irony here is that Jacob, who's just got the birthright, is going to have to run away with nothing. If he, you know, the true owner of the birthright should have been building up the family wealth and looking after the flocks and managing the land, but instead he's out of the picture. And Esau actually is left in the family with the wealth. Everything has turned upside down. And next week, we're going to continue the story, and you'll find out that uh, Laban, Rebekah's brother, where uh, Jacob goes to stay, is also a schemer and a liar. And Jacob's going to get some of his own medicine. The journey to safety in Iran is 500 miles, so it's a long journey. And the next episode we get in Genesis 28 is after Jacob had been on the run for about 60 miles and he, he stops, he probably thinks I'm, I'm out of danger now and he stops and rests for the night and he, he has nothing. I mean, he's the spoilt mum's baby who had everything laid on for him and now he's out in the wilds putting his head on a stone for a pillow so let's see what happens next. You know, if this was the EastEnders version, I think we would be waiting for Esau to track him down and get him and confront him. Maybe looking at some of the other stories in Genesis, we might be wondering, well, maybe God is going to track him down and judge him. Maybe he's going to be exiled or punished, you know, like Cain was. Maybe like Lot's wife, he's going to be turned into a pillar of salt. So let's see what happens next in Genesis 28. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. So maybe this is the moment of judgment. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father and the God of Isaac. 
I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east, to the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. What an amazing moment. We should be puzzled thinking, how can this kind of rotten, lying scoundrel get the promises and the blessing of God? How can God say to him, I'm I'm not going to leave you until I've done what I promised in you? God comes after him. He doesn't deserve this. In fact, he deserves judgment. He's betrayed his family. He's, He's lied to his father. But God, in his grace and mercy, comes after him. And that's how God works. He comes to those of us who sometimes are on the run, who are disqualified officially, who cheat and lie and let people down. But God's love, his grace is relentless. And he comes to Jacob and he comes to you and me. That's how he acts towards his people. Jacob wakes up. He is full of awe. He is amazed too. He knows now that God is real. I wonder if up to this point, his faith had just been kind of secondhand. He'd heard the stories of Abraham. He'd looked at his parents. Maybe he'd reduced the promises of God to wealth and land and property, and he'd never seen that God was real and that God loved him and had grace and purposes towards him. Maybe in this moment, he's really, he's really realizing it's not about power and property and the birthright. It's about a God who promises a future to him. I wonder if he would have identified with Jesus' words who said in Matthew 16, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Because when he grabbed the birthright, in effect, he was trying to get the whole world. He didn't care about the effect on his soul of that lying and cheating. But in this moment, everything switches around. And he sees that it's God that he needs to be chasing after. And he responds from his soul. And he says this. He makes a vow to God. If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a tenth. Jacob responds, 
with humility. He makes a covenant. He realizes he needs God's provision, God's protection. And instead of his own schemes and his own plans and his own wealth, he needs God now to provide for him. He needs to worship God as his God, not the God of Abraham or Isaac, but as his God. And he marks the event with a stone, which was quite common in those days. And that's really important because when we meet with God, when we say, I'm going to follow you, we need to mark that. Maybe it's through telling our friends and family that we've chosen to follow God. And certainly in the New Testament, the way believers marked that they were following Jesus was to be baptized. There's, there's five people getting baptized at the 5.30 meeting tonight who are going to be marking that moment and saying, I'm going to follow God. I'm putting my trust in him. The other thing that he does is he pledges to give a tenth from everything he receives to God back to God. And that is pretty amazing for Jacob. He's a grasper but he's going to become a giver. He's going to see now that everything comes from the hand of God, and out of gratitude, he's going to give back to God. That's a great example for us. It's an amazing story that this cheat, this schemer, this grasper, turns around as he meets with God. And you know, it should remind us of the moment we came to God, that God's grace came towards us. You know, because he's got purposes for you and I that go back to before the foundation of the world. His grace is towards us, and nothing can thwart those purposes and that, that grace, nor other people's actions towards us or our own stupidity or our deliberate sin can thwart God's grace towards us. He loves us, and his grace will come to us. It is interesting, though, that God doesn't protect Jacob from all the consequences of his wrong actions. And that's true for us, too, that sometimes we have to work through with God some of the decisions that we've made. Jacob will never inherit his father's wealth. Instead of power in the family, he will have to serve a cheating uncle to build up his own wealth. He will never see his mother again who loved him so much, and he will be estranged from his father and brother until the end of their lives. But God will be with him. And God will work out his promises in his life. And Jacob will eventually be renamed Israel. And he will have 12 sons. And the promises of God will go down to their descendants, the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, God likes to be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God brings Jacob into his purposes. As you listen to this story, it's familiar to many of us. Who do you relate to in this story? Have you been maybe running away from God's promises for your future? 
Have you been living for the moment, for pleasure and satisfaction and not worrying about the consequences? Have you made choices to just grab pleasure in the moment instead of follow God? What is your bowl of stew? Is it a relationship that you know is ungodly, but you say, I'm going to have that? Is it an ambition that makes you cut corners at work because you want that promotion? Is it a habit that's robbing you of peace? Now is the time to decide God's grace is towards you. Walk away from the bowl of stew. You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer reflects on Esau's life and he's, he's urging the readers to live a holy life. And he says, don't be like Esau. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. The challenge comes to us, don't be like Esau. Or do you identify with Jacob? Are you fed up of waiting for God's promises to be worked out in your life? Are you scheming and striving and working hard to make it happen, to get the things you think you deserve? And it's hurting your family. Your ambitions are breaking up your family. It was great to hear Patricia's testimony this morning because in the end, When families are broken apart, when there's division, it hurts us so badly, doesn't it? Maybe you're a child that resents an elderly parent. Maybe you've got problems between brothers and sisters. God's grace comes to you this morning and he says, come back to me. Acknowledge me. Let me lead and guide you. Let me provide Jesus picks up this story in John chapter 1 when he meets Nathanael, a friend of one of the first disciples. And Jesus talks to Nathanael and he calls him an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Now remember, all Israelites have descended from Jacob, the man who had plenty of guile, you know, who was a cheater, who didn't have any integrity. But Nathanael has that integrity. Jesus wants to challenge him, and he says this to him. He reminds him of this story of Jacob meeting God and the the stairway between heaven and earth. And he says this, You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, and he says, In this moment, you're going to be able to connect with God because of me and my life. And the pathway between the holy God and sinful man is going to be opened up because of what Jesus will do, that he will live a perfect life, that he will die and take on himself all the sins, all the guilt, all the treachery that we have in our hearts. And then we will have the opportunity, if we put our faith in him, to connect and be part of God's family to truly come into the people of Israel, the people of God. Romans 5 verse 8 says this, God demonstrates his own love for, for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
We are the baddies in our own story. But God loves us. In fact, if we claim to be without sin, 1 John 1 says, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's what he started to do in Jacob's life in this story. He's going to change him from the inside out. And God changes us from the inside us. And he tells us that we have a birthright as children of God, as followers of Jesus. We have a birthright. We are sons and daughters of the king. And we're called to live a holy life. God knows that it's difficult for us, that within us are mixed motives. And one day we're really the goody and the next day we're the baddie. But we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's run to his throne of grace this morning. If you've been a Christian for a while and you've taken that grace for granted, as we break bread in a few minutes, uh, receive that grace afresh. If you've believed in him but you've never been baptized, why not decide today to mark that moment and to publicly proclaim his grace? Let's be generous people out of gratitude for his grace. Let's be givers, not graspers. Let's remember we have an inheritance and let's live up to it. Let's take this moment as we break bread to confess our sins and to find grace afresh. I'm going to ask the band to come up. I'm going to pray and then Steve is going to lead us in breaking of bread. Oh Lord, we do ask that we will receive your grace again this morning, that we will realize how amazing it is that you love us, that you reveal yourself to us, even though there are moments in our life we make bad decisions, we rebel, we choose not to live up to what you've called us to. We have mixed motives and we bring all those to you and we say, Lord, forgive us and cleanse us, renew us, restore us, lift our heads to see the birthright is ours. Come and be with us as we worship and break bread together, I pray. Amen. Amen.